World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Scandal has again rocked the world of horse racing, with the winner of this year's Kentucky Derby at risk of disqualification and unable to run in this weekend's Belmont Stakes. We look at an industry that's suffering for its drug problem. And during the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s, the fight was joined by the International Brigades, foreign fighters against Franco's fascists. Our obituaries editor looks back on the life of the last surviving member. First up, though. Seven years into the war in Yemen, the situation is as bleak as ever. Fighting continues between the Houthis, a group of Shia rebels, and forces loyal to the government, backed by Saudi Arabia. Government forces have been pushed back to Marib, the last big city in the north still under their control. Only airstrikes by Saudi Arabia are slowing the Houthis' advance, an advance that's only worsening a grinding humanitarian crisis. The United Nations has said that millions are set to go hungry this year. Humanitarian situation in Yemen is falling off a cliff, with more than 20 million Yemenis needing humanitarian assistance. And on Monday, their special envoy called for an urgent ceasefire. The continuation of military activities in several parts of the country, including Marib, is undermining, in my view, the prospects of peace in Yemen. It puts the lives of millions at risk, and this war needs to end. But that is unlikely. The fight for Marib is just the latest front in a long and bruising war, with peace nowhere in sight. The Houthi rebels are already in control already of much of northern Yemen, have got within about four kilometers of the last stronghold of the Yemeni government, which is Marib in the northeast. Nicholas Pelham is our Middle East correspondent. They've suffered a few losses. They've been pushed back by Saudi airstrikes, but they're still determined to press on. And the killing is quite extensive. Observers say it's a bit like trench warfare. The loss of life is some of the highest there's been in the war. And this is in a part of the country which had been one of the safest. Marib was a place of refuge for many who had been displaced by fighting elsewhere. The Saudis had made it a base for their operations. And we're now at a point where Saudi Arabia and the government would really accept a ceasefire and the Houthis are ignoring their calls because they're the ones that are winning and they want the city. And as the Houthis are advancing, what's life like for the people under their control? Over two-thirds of Yemen's 30 million people live under Houthi rule. The population is concentrated in the areas that they control in the northwest. And they've really turned that part of Yemen into something of a repressive theocracy, much like the one in Iran. Political opponents and journalists are locked up. Sometimes they've been executed. Cafes where men and women, once mixed, have been closed. And some of 
Yemen's last remaining Jews have been expelled, pretty much bringing an end to a 3,000-year history of Jewish presence in the highlands. So people on the ground are describing it as something akin to a cultural revolution. Poor peasants come back from battlefields, hardened believers. There are even re-education camps for adults. And what about the humanitarian situation that we've talked about in Yemen so many times before? Saudi Arabia has maintained a blockade on the ports that the Houthis control ever since they intervened in the fighting in 2015, and that's crippled the economy in the north. But at the same time, the Houthis are compounding the suffering. They're diverting aid and selling it for profit. And the humanitarian situation is really desperate. COVID is rife, but the Houthis have hindered the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines because they want to control delivery. And there was a report from February where four UN agencies said that up to 400,000 children could die of starvation unless there was urgent intervention. But if the Houthis have been cut off so much, how did they find the resources to, to wage this kind of war? It's often the case when you're under blockade and sanctions, the winners are the war profiteers, and the Houthis have turned themselves into war profiteers par excellence. They're not paying salaries except to themselves and their fighters. Their smugglers are taking fuel from ports in the south. There are checkpoints, these double as customs posts, which raise more revenue. And Iran is smuggling significant volumes of weapons and components to the Houthis and is providing supply parts for their drones and missiles. That's according to a UN panel of experts. Some are gaining incredibly amid the starvation. There's a real estate boom. There are new glamorous malls, and there's just a massive disparity of wealth and poverty. And now you say Merib is a, is a focus of the conflict. If it were taken by the Houthis, how significant a, a military gain would that be, do you think? Control of Marib would give the Houthis control of the North's only oil refinery. It would be the gateway to the oil fields in the east and south. There are some that argue that once the Houthis have Marib, they'd stop there and negotiate a settlement with the Saudis and the formal Yemeni government. But there are others who say no, that kind of they'd have the fuel and the finance to keep going. They'd feel the wind was in their sails. The pro-government coalition would be demoralized. It would lose its last base in the north. And so there are real questions about whether the government itself could survive at all. Its leadership is in exile. Yemeni soldiers complain about unpaid salaries and a lack of arms. And the rest of the country, which is supposed to be under the nominal rule of the Yemeni government, is fragmenting. There's a separatist movement called the Southern Transitional Council. And though it's ostensibly part of the coalition, some in that council see the defeat of the government as a possible win for them because they believe they could actually strike out for complete separation of the South from the North and rid themselves of nominal unity, which the government represents. So you're really talking about a situation in which the government is already on its last legs and could collapse altogether. You mentioned that Iran is providing weapons to the Houthis. What about other international powers? What have they been doing? The United Arab Emirates, which was allied with the Saudis in trying to initially prop up the Yemeni government, pulled out most of its forces in 2019. The Saudis themselves seem to now consider Yemen to be something of a trap. They've unintentionally enhanced Iranian influence and strengthened the Houthis when they've intended to do the opposite. There are missile and drone attacks on Saudi cities and oil installations and airports, which the Houthis are carrying out, and they're even raiding inside Saudi Arabia itself. And so Mohammed bin Salman, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia and the crown prince, has reached out to the Houthis, he's appealed to them to join him at the negotiating table. And then you have the Americans. Joe Biden is taking a far 
stronger line vis-a-vis Saudi intervention in, in the fighting than his predecessor. We're also stepping up our diplomacy to end the war in Yemen, a war which has created humanitarian and strategic catastrophe. He's pledged to stop offensive arms sales to Saudi Arabia. This war has to end. And to underscore our commitment, we're ending all American support for offensive operations in the war in Yemen, including relevant arms sales. And then last February, the American administration removed the Houthis from their list of terrorist organizations. They've said that they will increase the flow of aid. They've also made efforts to kickstart the peace process. But is that peace process going to happen? It doesn't look very promising at the moment. It's not going to be easy to bring the parties to some form of resolution. Marriage defenders and most of its inhabitants detest the Houthis and they reject their religious beliefs. The open ground around Mario makes it hard to penetrate the city. Saudi jets are bombarding the advance. And at the same time, Yemen is increasingly part of a bigger picture of talks between Iran and America about what detente in the region would look like. And until that's resolved, the Iranians are likely to continue to treat Yemen as a negotiating card. So years into this conflict now, there's still no relief in sight for the people of Yemen. Sadly not. This was already the poorest country in the Middle East. It's been ravaged by over seven years of fighting, and, and it just feels as if this war has a lot longer to run before the sides can finally lay down their arms. Thanks very much for joining us, Nicholas. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Grab your finest hat. This weekend, it's the Belmont Stakes, the third of the flagship Triple Crown of horse races. Saturday night in America is a really, really big deal. It's the third leg of the American Triple Crown, the Belmont Stakes in New York. Last month, a colt named Medina Spirit won the first, the Kentucky Derby. Here's the wire! Bob Beffert does it again! Medina Spirit has won the Kentucky Derby! But then the horse failed a drug test. This week, a second test confirmed that result. It's bad news for the horse and its trainer, and it's indicative of a big and growing problem for the wider racing industry. Like all sports, the COVID pandemic presented a lot of challenges to the horse industry, but the interest in horse racing has been declining for years. Rosemary Ward is The Economist's New York correspondent. Part of the problem is that outside of the excitement generated by the three prestigious Triple Crown races that take place in America each year, horse racing has been suffering from almost consistently bad press. And what's been the cause of that bad press? You know, it's horse doping involving some of the most prestigious stables, the most famous horses and the most recognized trainers. 
Most recently, Medina Spirit, the horse who last month won the Kentucky Derby, one of the three big Triple Crown events, tested positive for excessive amounts of betamethasone, which is an anti-inflammatory drug permitted, but only in small amounts. So as a result, the horse's trainer, Bob Baffert, who is one of the most widely known sports figures, even outside horse racing, has been banned from participating in this weekend's Belmont Stakes, the third leg of the Triple Crown. And that's a really big deal. He's one of the most prominent figures in the sport. He has an astonishing 16 Triple Crown wins for his horses, but he has a lot of infractions, five medical drug infractions in the past year alone. But he's not alone. There's been dozens of high-profile doping cases in recent years. And this is doping as we see in in human sports, just for better performance? Well, better performance, but not in terms of getting stronger or improving endurance. What most of these medical drugs do is hide or mask any injuries that the horses might be suffering from so that they can race through a sore leg or a pulled muscle or any number of injuries. And horses are extremely fragile, so they get injured very easily. And presumably masking those injuries is even worse for them. Well, as you can imagine, just like it would be ill-advisable for any of us to run on, say, a sprained anything, for a horse doing it, you know, at full speed, it's really bad. And these drugs, they're hiding underlying issues. I mean, the reason why we have pain is so we take care of it. And a lot of these cumulative damages caused by these drugs can cause catastrophic injuries and even death on the track. Horses are more likely to break down and they need to be euthanized. And these drugs are allowed in small amounts and and they're often needed. But when these legal drugs are combined in what's called stacking, which is layering different drugs in small amounts, it can harm the animals, both in the short term and the long term. And it frankly skirts the spirit of these protective rules. And so it's sort of within the rules, but people are skirting the spirit of it. I mean, is there any move to change the rules? Well, California has now banned stacking, meaning horses won't be on multiple medications. But in other jurisdictions, you're still allowed to do that. So what really is needed is strong national oversight, and we may have that on the home stretch. The Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act was signed into law in December by President Trump, one of his last acts as president, and it will require national uniform safety standards, which will include anti-doping and medication control. And Scott Stanley, a chemist I interviewed at the Gluck Equine Centre, is helping to write those rules. But encouragingly, he told me he's already seen signs of change. He's seen fewer medication infractions in his service lab in Kentucky. And he thinks it's because that the good trainers, the quality trainers and vets are saying, I'm not taking any risks. They don't want to hurt their horses and they don't want to get into trouble. But the bad press and the doping is, as you say, not, not the biggest problem for horse racing. No, far from it. Um, In fact, probably the doping is just a symptom of these bigger challenges. The biggest of all is financial. Fewer people are going to the races, fewer people are making bets, and it's getting harder for the race industry, specifically the tracks, to make ends meet. And on top of that, the typical fan is skewing much older. So they don't have that you know, next generation of possible fans coming. And so a lot of tracks are just closing down. And is there anything being done to, as it were, rejuvenate the sport? Well, I mean, perhaps not the sport particularly, but a lot of tracks have been introducing slot machines. Some are partnering with casinos or becoming racinos, which is sort of a mixture of racetracks and casinos. 
They're trying to become more of a destination. Saratoga, which is a, a big racetrack in upstate New York, has marketed itself as a family destination, and it's doing that successfully. But I was in Belmont 10 days ago, and it was a beautiful Sunday afternoon, and it was pretty empty uh, and pretty grim. You know, there were a few people there. And from talking to staff, that's been the norm even before the pandemic. So horse racing has an uphill battle to attract stable audiences because, you know, frankly, there's so much else that they could be doing. There's a lot of competition for their money and for their attention. But I was in Belmont recently, and it is a very exciting sport. But the problem is that the three prestigious races a year that produce those few minutes of excitement is hardly a sustainable business model for an entire industry. But still, I mean, NBC, one of the main television networks in America, will carry the third leg of the Triple Crown this weekend and will be sure to get millions of viewers. But the next day, it'll be back to normal. And given all that, will you be watching the Belmont Stakes this weekend? You know, I probably will. I mean, it is a very exciting race. It's the longest race of the Triple Crown. They call it the Marathon. And it's really anyone's race to win this year, especially with Bob Bafford out of it. Rosemary, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. Joseph Almudiver was the last of the fighters in the international brigades who went to Spain in the Civil War to help the left-wing republic against the fascists of Francisco Franco. And he was intensely proud of having fought in that war and having been the last one standing, so to speak. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. So he would appear at all the various awards ceremonies and so on that honoured him with a flag in his pocket. And at the drop of a hat, he'd unfurl the flag of the Spanish Republic, which is red, yellow and purple. He'd drape it round his shoulders. Then he would raise a clenched fist, shout, Viva el socialismo! Long live socialism! And although he was a very old man at 101 when he died, he would also break into a Republican song, the sort he'd sung on the front line, in a voice that was carrying and clear, as if he was a young man again. In the rising of fascists against the government, brother raises his rifle against brother. That is the tragedy of civil war. Seville, Saragossa, San Sebastian... He was desperate to fight as soon as the coup occurred, which was in July 1936. He was only 17 at the time, however, and that was too young to enlist. His father helped him produce a fake birth certificate, which claimed he was 19, and away he marched. Churches and cathedrals burn. Public and private buildings are sacked and pillaged as by the army of an invader. The battle he first got involved in was one of the most notorious of the Spanish Civil War. This was at Teruel in Aragon, which is a bleak little town, and it was absolutely freezing weather, and they were trying to dislodge Franco's troops. And he was wounded. He was hit by shrapnel in the chest and the shoulder, and he was invalided out. But he was so keen to get back to the front line. And having been detected as too young now to have been there, he had to try and find 
some other group to join up with. And that was when he began to think about the international brigades because they took in foreigners who were absolutely determined to come and rescue the Spanish Republic from the fascists. They saw it as a miniature struggle, if you like, of trying to save the whole world from fascism. Among these foreigners, he decided he would fit in fine because, in fact, he'd been born in Marseille. So he had dual nationality, French and Spanish. In his own battalion, he had a Swiss, a German, a Dutchman, an American, and they couldn't understand each other. But he reckoned it all worked out absolutely fine. A lot of the time, they were just hanging around because they weren't allowed to fight independently. They had to wait for orders from the main Republican generals and commanders. It was quite a frustrating life that the brigades had, although, of course, they were all involved in the most tremendous cause as far as they were concerned, and a lot of them were extremely idealistic, and so was he. In October 1938, the Republic suddenly decided that it would order all the international brigades to withdraw. It hoped that if all the foreign fighters went home on their side, then Franco would send home all the foreign fighters on his side. After two and a half years of civil war, the government stronghold in the south of Spain has capitulated. Insurgent troops of General Franco's army hurry into... So the war was lost and Joseph went home to Valencia and he was arrested there. And he was taken to a concentration camp. There were 1,700 Republican fighters in his and most of them were being shot one after the other for attempting to escape. And he was made to watch their executions. And he remembered their screams. They all went to their deaths shouting, Viva el socialismo, long live socialism, long live the Republic. And he could not forget that. And as soon as he was allowed to come out, having spent some time there, some time in prison, he started fighting again in a guerrilla movement to organize the rural people in the northeast of Spain. But gradually it was clear that there was no future there and he had a young family to think about. So he decided in 1947 that he would actually depart for France. And there he settled and he was not allowed to return to Spain until 1965. Even though he was in exile, he kept a very sharp eye on everything that was happening. He was infuriated by the continual divisions of the left. He was still such a believer that socialism and indeed communism were the way of the future, that men had to learn to be brothers, that money had to be banned. He was still absolutely burning with the cause. I think this showed most potently when he was interviewed as he got older, People realised he was going to be the last one of the line and went to his flat in Pamier to talk to him. And he would receive them in a lounge that was absolutely full of posters, medals he'd won, flags of the Republic. And it was notable, or I certainly noticed when watching these films, that on the wall he had the famous Karch portrait of Che Guevara, looking very noble and as if he's waiting for the dawn of socialism. And beside him, there's 
a poster which features Joe Seven when he was about the age of enlisting, with that same look that Che has of anticipating the future as a golden dawn for mankind. And this was still his great dream, and he would say to the people who interviewed him, if Spain needs me in this moment, when I can see that fascism is growing again in the world, I'll take up arms, and I won't be afraid to go on foot across the Pyrenees. Anne Rowe on Joseph Almudeber, who's died aged 101. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell and Kim Gittleson. Our sound engineer is Daniel Lloyd Evans. Our senior producers are Chris Impey, Duncan Barber, and Sam Colbert. Our producers are Stevie Hertz and William Warren, and assistant producer Jason Hoskin, with extra production help this week from Kevin Caners. We'll all see you back here on Monday. next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist.